history. Lecture number 39, Rabbi Blyweiss. So last time I threw out this, uh, this red herring. It's not a red herring. Really, let me, let me see, let me see, and I can, I can uh, use, use it to, uh, to speak from. The, um, one of the images you can look at here, it's a section of Megillus Esther, the, the one that you, will be familiar to you with the reading of the 10 sons of Haman who were hanged. And if you notice, and it's been there, and this is just a facsimile, it's not uh, nothing, no, no, it, no news, no news there. You notice, and that picture actually has them circled. You notice the three conspicuously small letters. What are the three conspicuously small letters in the various sons, Parshandasa, in, in, their, in their names? You have, a, you have a spread the wealth a little bit. Aren't you seen this before? Okay. You have a taf, you have a um, a shin, and you have a zayin. Can you see those? Yeah, the top and the shin of the Zion. And not, unlike you know, many of uh, these, these unusual, these aberrations in the Torah come with lots of meanings, lots of midrashim. Let's say last week's Parsha, when Avram comes, it's a very menu, so it was v'liv kosah. He comes and he cries over her, and there's a small chaf, which famously is darshan to show that he didn't want to uh, indicate any regret for the akedah, and so his crying, his weeping over his beloved wife was understated, so that people shouldn't think that he's uh, he's somehow crying because of any regret for uh, serving Hashem in in, uh, in following his instructions in the akedah. So, um, but here you have the tafshin vav, which don't have any apparent meaning. Um, and then it says, of course, the Pasuk is circled, underlined there, about the hanging of the ten sons of, um, of Haman. And we know that there was a, another child of Haman that we encountered here. The daughter, who the Gemara Megillah tells us, threw herself off the roof. Then, let me have the other one. Yeah. So then you have a series of different... Um, by the way, I should cite my sources. I collected these sources. I didn't collect the sources. This is from a, an, Aish, an old Aish manual, their old discovery manual. I'm sure it's all much more high-tech and published online or however they have it, but they have an account of the Nuremberg trials from 1946, which in the Hebrew calendar, 1946? Tafshin Zion. Oh my. But it's the year Tafshin Zion, exactly those three letters that we saw indicated in the Megillah. And now it gets scarier. It gets scarier. Right. So we have we have um, headlines. This on this is way too small to make out. With the account of the Nuremberg trials and the hanging of what was supposed to have been eleven Nazi criminals, one of them one of them uh, committed suicide, right? Um, and the other ten were hanged. The one who committed uh, Gehring, who committed suicide, was known to be a, uh, was dabbled in, as we say in the Torah, Beged uh, Isha. He dabbled in cross dressing. And so, uh, and, and, and the suicide is likened to Haman's daughter, the Amalek, the seed of Amalek, and as some would like to equate the Nazis with Amalek, certainly if not literally as a nation, although some would say that too, certainly in terms of deed, in terms of, uh, in terms of um, trying to annihilate Klali Israel. Uh, and of the, of the many different parallels, you could look more, you can look further in this if you'd like, I'll send this to you as well. Um, it does describe at the very end, I can. How do I make this large? Uh, this lower paragraph I want to make larger so I can, I can cite it. The Newsweek article. There's a Newsweek article. Newsweek being once upon a time a major, um, a major um, journal in, in America. I think it went out of business. That um, the photographs. No, where did it go? <laughs> oh, it's, here we go. Uh, only Julius Stryker went without dignity to his death. 
He had to be pushed across the floor, wild-eyed and screaming, Heil Hitler. Mounting the, strip, the steps, he cried out, he cried out, and now I go to God. He stared at witnesses facing the gallows, and I'm adding, very mysteriously, and without any explanation, nobody ever commented on this, he shouted his last words, Purimfest, 1946. That's what he shouted. As I, I, listen, folks, I just report some. I don't mix them up, right? As 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 the expression goes, I just this is the way this is the way it comes down from. Wait, a lot of the guys uh, are apologetic. Reputable, reputable uh, uh, Newsweek, if it's reputable. I know the guys. Anyway, anyway, a lot of people want to say that's quite a striking coincidence, and maybe that's hinted at. The they use that in the Bible quotes presentation. I have no alternate explanation. I would never. Um, offer this as a proof of the uh, of the divinity of the text. I already believe the text is divine. I don't need any such proofs. But um, but it's still quite striking, and I tend to it seems to me quite a um, you know I, I don't see it as a coincidence. It seems to be quite deliberate. Anyway, uh, you could you could look more. There, there are more the more uh, choice details there that, that are striking, uh, in addition to the Tafshin design. We did a whole discussion. It was not a whole discussion. Honestly, we can go so much deeper. Um, and this is just a, this, this whole class is meant intentionally as a tease, as, a, as a, an appetite, uh, an appetizer. Uh, so you can you can go deeper into all these aspects of history. But we talked about um, the uh, significance of the various figures in the Megillah. We know the denouement. The end of the story goes something like this: Where Ahasuerus rules another fourteen years. When he dies. He's replaced by Daryavesh, who may be Artachshasta. Artachshasta is the one that's identified as the next Persian king. Uh, some say it's, it says Xerxes. Um, the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah indicates explicitly, the Gemara says, this Daryavesh, that would be the second Daryavesh. Remember, the first Daryavesh was the king of Madai. Um, this Daryavesh... Um, is, is indicated by the Gemara as being the son that Ahasuerus bore with Esther, making, among other things, that Daryavesh Jewish, even though he's the Persian emperor. Well, he was uh, Esther's son. He would be yeah, Jewish. Yeah. Rashi, however, yeah. there implies, and you can look up the source and figure it out for yourself, Rashi employ, impl uh, implies that he was not Esther's son and that he was a guy. Uh huh. There's a lot of explanations. A famous toast was the famous tomorrow over in Sanhedrin as well. Esther Karka Olam Havia, right? And a, and a whole discussion. Um, what's interesting now? Now that the second Daryavish is the is the emperor. Um, he actually is more favorably disposed. Again, he may be Jewish, in which case he's certainly just positively disposed to Klal Yisrael. When now Jewish enemies come back and want to say, "Remember, King, about those Jews and they're seditious, and you got to stop them. They're going to build. They're going to try to build their building and 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 uh, and, and rebel against you." Now Daryavesh, unlike his father, dismisses them, and he decides the building will be completed. And arguably, of the of the historical uh, events preceding and and and, and following the, uh, the the story of Purim, this is the most important piece of uh, follow up. The piece of fallout from the whole story is the building of the base of Mikdash that was stopped before the whole episode with Purim and um, commences afterward. Specifically, Am Yisrael, after they reaccepted the Torah in exile. 
they dive into a Kaddish Baruch Hu in a way that's described as unprecedented, meaning it was never equaled before. On some level, it's never been equaled again. It leads to a wave of massive tshuva uh, that fulfills the whole purpose of Golos, of why a Kaddish Baruch Hu needed to exile the Jews. You realize that everything in the world comes for a purpose. We had initially to go down to, eat, to Mitzrayim in order to learn what kind, what the negative kind of human servitude what would be, in order to understand, it was all a necessary process to leave Egypt, to receive Matan Torah, to live that period in the Midbar, only to come into Eretz Yisrael. It was all part of a necessary sequence we had to go through psychologically, physiologically, in order to in order to be Hashem's people. So to hear, with all of our imperfections, the Baruch Hu had to take us through the process of Galus Bavel to uh, to clean our clean ourselves up. And to realize this final tachlis, to, to, to make tshuva. Um, we suggested before, we did answer the question, that this, that they, as deplorable as their acts were that led up to the Chorban Besamikdash, their tshuva was exemplary, was exactly what it was supposed to be. They were broken, they repented, and in the end, as we read in the Megillah, La Yehudim Haisa'ora Vesimcha Vesasun Vikar, which the Megillah, the Gemara Megillah Darshans, Oira is Torah. Simcha are the Mo'adim, are the festivals. Sason equals the Mila. Yikar is Tfilin. These are all signs of the covenant and phases of our serving a Kaddish Baruch Hu in our daily and constant activity, in our daily lives and our constant activity. When the Jews reaffirm these at the end of the uh, Megillah, we really understand that we've come full cycle and now we're worthy spiritually, morally, to have a base of Mikdash rebuilt. And history really does fit a, a necessary flow. We are, we started the Megillah as Haman accused us, an Am Mefuzar Mefurad. Uh, we were a dispersed, uh, disunified people. And now, Ishachad, Belevachad, like we were by Harsinai, by, by, the, by the giving of the Torah, we're now reunified, each man, one heart, reaffirming the covenant, as the Pasuk says, they re-accepted upon themselves the covenant with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, upon themselves, their descendants, all converts, they did it with great love. They did it now a second time after Matan Torah, this time without being told, without being forced. By Matan Torah, you remember the men, Hashem held the mountain over their heads. This time there was none of that. In fact, they were in the darkness of exile. And with the, as, as is reflected in the uh, <coughs> style of the Megillah itself, Hakadosh Baruch Hu's name is nowhere explicitly mentioned. Of course, it's everywhere to be found. You just have to know where to look. And under those circumstances, in the darkness of exile, the fact that Klal Yisrael rose to the occasion uh, is one of the greatest acts in all of history. The real heroes of Megillah's Esther, on some level, is the entire nation together, collectively. And now, here's the part, and I made a really brief, anybody caught this yesterday on our tour of Yerushalayim, I made a brief uh, observation of this yesterday, and I said, we'll get to this, and I'll, I'll, elaborate, um, I'll elaborate today. Can you take out your timelines briefly? I might have even discussed that. Um, take out your timeline, and Aaron, if I can borrow yours, I'm going to hold it up. Um, this is a really important point, I made this before. There is an important difference Sometimes people can think I'm squabbling or I'm being pedantic, meaning overly, uh, you know, overly focused on, on irrelevant or, or fringe kind of issues. I don't think this is so fringe. When I present to you in these timelines that I handed out, and I'm happy to give them out again if you want to make a request, send me an email, 
Um, we notice the Jewish, calculated to the, to the secular dates, the Jewish version of the secular dates, versus on the side when I write the secular dates, you'll note that the Corbin um, Bayes Rishon in the secular calendar, they say it's, eight, it's 586. Um, we say the Jewish calendar, the Corbin was 422 approximately. <coughs> Uh, and then the Purim story, according to the Jewish calendar, is 533. But notice I don't have a secular date there. That's because the secular calendar, based on the Christian calendar, actually puts the whole Purim e um, episode well into the Second Temple period, long after the Temple was rebuilt. They have a totally twisted calendar. And you realize the implications. Why did they put it Because they said, because like this. They it's, it's, you have to back up. It's really, the, according to Rav Sajigaon, the Christians done it. They distorted the calendar in order to, they added approximately 167 years, inflating what's called the Persian period, which is much shorter than they have it. We have the Persian period, really, uh, until Alexander the, uh, 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 the Great, it's 312. So we would put the entire Persian period uh, within the same... Uh, time frame of about, from approximately mm -mm -mm, 372 to 312, make that 60 years. They um, add on another 100 some odd, uh, 160 some odd years to what they call a longer Persian period. Um, they do that, as Rav just says, for a variety of reasons, but mainly to add legitimacy to the claim that Yashka, Jesus, was the Messiah. They made it a few different reasons. One is to, so that it's his death or birth should correspond with the jubilee year, with the Yovel. It should mean that he should correspond with a certain vision in Daniel. Because they did all kinds of things, manipulating things, because why not? The world was not oriented yet by a distinct <coughs> calendar. Um, we, after all, in the world, think about it. We're counting, you know, we're considering these dates before the common era. Think one second, let me make this point. Before the common era, you know that at this time, they weren't thinking, hey, what year is it? I know, it's 350 years before the Common Era. Right? You realize that? That's nonsensical? Right? right? They were counting from different times. We already said from Korban by from Korban based on Mikdash, from the destruction of the Temple, previously from the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, for the giving of the Torah, from, from the other, other um, iconic events. So um, it's the Christians that messed up the calendar, and the secular world now has established that that's the legitimate authoritative calendar, and I'm just cautioning us as traditional Jews, we don't buy that. We don't say that the temple, the, 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 time, the timing's right. And here, specifically with the Purim story, they date it later because it seems to correspond with their dates and how they had the Persian period. But if you say that, then the whole moral significance of the narrative is destroyed, which is undermining, which is a kind of heretical undermining of, of the whole story. We said again, as I just emphasized, we only got to build the second temple, temple because the Jews were worthy of it. But that means that that had to pre-exist, pre-date the, um, the actual finishing, the completion of the base of Mikdash. What are you going to say, Elan? Elan, Elan? So it's a combination of different things. Some of it is based in, uh, mostly based on the Christian calendar. And the Christian calendar, again... So like, for example, we even know that there are 70 years of exile, which means the first temple being destroyed. So how are they, like... They would, have they would also they also say that, that that part they have so they would say on their calendar they say they, they usually have 586 before the common era is the, is the korban and then and then um, the final 
the end of that, the final dedication, Hanukkah's Beis Mikdash, the inauguration of the Second Temple, is 516. <coughs> Read it 70 years. And it was that much, that much for some reason, they have no problem putting in sync, harmonizing with the view of Chazal. But other things, like, for example, the number of years that we keep saying that, that, that the First Temple was 410 years and the Second Temple was 420 years, they, they get rid of that. So I'm saying, where are they getting their... They, Arbitrary. Arbitrary. They established this... Yeah, they say arbitrary. They they take from here and there. They say the consensus the consensus among all great historians is like this, and therefore it becomes a fact on the ground, and nobody questions it anymore. To the point that when you go with most tour guides, even sometimes I think some naive from tour guides, they just take it as a, as a given that the korban was in 586. I, I claim that anybody who um, who uses that date is either um, explicitly, knowingly using some kind of a, a, a heresy kfira, or is just an ignoramus. <laughs> And there are people, there's sometimes people who are reasonable, you know, try to be Jewish historians and try to do that, and they'll just use those dates because that's what's so accepted in the world, they don't think twice about it. I'm and suggesting that you think twice. Cyrus? No, he wasn't. Cyrus was a, was a predecessor. He's the original emperor of the Persian, the very short, we would have the very brief Persian <laughs> Empire before Greece takes over. If you think about it, the way they see the Megillah and the simple text of the Megillah sometimes can appear as a disconnected text. It's so different, after all, as we said, from the rest of the Tanakh that it almost feels like this fable that's kind of floating in the air, like an ethereal fable that's floating in the air that's not connected to anything. After you learn Masechus Megillah and the rest of Midrashim, Chazal portray from, and even in the Megillah itself, it does indicate that it's part of a sequence. When it mentions in the beginning of the second chapter that Mordechai was part of Golos Yechonia, we think, oh right, Yechonia, this has greater significance. It is interconnected to all the rest of the narrative stream of history as we have it. It's meant to recall the earlier sins as much as the Kimu Vakiblu at the end is meant to indicate the building of the Second Temple and that it does have a very important, um, it's, it represents a very important juncture and, uh, and, and, and building block to the rest of Jewish history. The Beis Mikdash Baruch Hashem then is uh, resumed, the building is resumed, and um, finally completed, again, according to our calendar, it's approximately, what date do I give on that calendar? Do you realize that there's a margin of error? These are calculated dates. They, again, because we don't have the calendar complete, but what do we say? Hanukkah's by Shani? <coughs> Hanuk no, that's Hanukkah. We want the, we don't, I don't give it? By Shani built is approximately, uh, I give a couple dates, what do I say here? It's five, third, 352. Let's say that's a process. So it's it's finally completed. I mentioned this yesterday in our Torah Yerushalayim. The first version is ha certainly halachically acceptable. After all, it was done with the guidance of two or three of the final prophets. But it's a shadow of the first temple. It's a uh, it's the minimalist, poorest of all the versions of the base of Mikdash. And it'll undergo it'll undergo several renovations. Um, there'll be the first what we call Shivat Sion, the first iteration, the first version of the temple to be rebuilt. Anybody remember this? I threw this out very quickly, but I threw out lots of things very quickly yesterday. Um, the rebuilding will be under the um, under the uh, supervision of our host here in Orsameach, 
Um, which, what's the street name here? Shimon Hatzadik, buried across the valleyway in East Jerusalem. Shimon Hatzadik. We'll talk about that. He leads a major re series of renovations, um, as will a few century, a few. Uh, generations later, under the Chashmonaim, there'll be another renovation of the base of Mikdash. Finally, the fourth and last version of the Second Temple, by far the most significant, is under, we said this yesterday, Herod, the Herodian version, which we'll, we'll spend some time discussing, and we saw some really helpful pictures and models yesterday to depict it. Yeah? Um, they all be, they all No, it, 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 the last version was by far the greatest of all these earlier versions. Um, they they got progressively better, meaning the weakest iteration of the base of Mikdash was now, was in this first stage. Understandably, they built it from scratch. They had few, they had few resources, low budget, and they did what they could, quite minimally. And I'm going to talk about now the differences. It's not the same as the first temple, and it's not even the same as what will be later on. Elon. Am I personally? Yeah, you said you would. I would. I would. I think especially Mamish right now with the tragedy, with the massacre yesterday, and so on. I mean, I'm sure my all of my colleagues would would, would tell me no, I can't. Okay. So let's just wait till things. Bezrash Hashem, very soon should cool off. We should daven hard. That um, so many things we want to we have on our agenda this year. Let's try to accomplish them. Yeah. And there are sacrifices in the second temple. Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. Oh, let's. Oh, you're ahead of me now. Even though the tabernacle wasn't there. Tabernacle? What tabernacle? The Mishkan, the Mishkan was certainly, the elements that were incorporated in the base of Mikdash were gone, it's true. The elements that Shlomo didn't need are underneath, under, underground. Uh, oh, the Aron was not there, but it's not disqualifying. And even though, you know, your, your question is well taken, remember, I don't know if this is what you're thinking, but I imagine it is. Um, you're very good at putting together all the details. The, we saw when the Aaron wasn't in the Mishkan that Bamos were permitted, and maybe that's what you're thinking. If we don't have the Aaron Kodesh, so maybe something's different in the second temple. We'll see in meaningful ways the second temple is not the same as the first. I'm about to explain how, but um, not in that regard. Meaning the base of Mikdash from the time that Shlomo HaMelech built it and inaugurated it, and that the Hanukkah Sabais, the first Hanukkah Sabais, from that time on there was a Kedusha, Bamos would be eternally, permanently forbidden. And therefore, the only address for Korbanos is the base of Mikdash. And as we're about to see now, oh no, we saw this last week. We saw this in our, excuse me, in our, one of our last classes. They actually brought Korbanos with the guidance of the um, of the Navim. They don't, you don't necessarily even need the actual structure of the temple itself. You remember yesterday looking at the structure with the Ulam and the Hechal and Dvir um, to actually offer Korbanos. If you have a Mizbeach, that's adequate for certain Korbanos. Other things you can't do. Wait, so the, so where the um, rocket today? Yes. And then the, before it had the Kodesh, it had the uh, Iron Kodesh. Mm -hmm. What was there afterwards? Stay tuned. We're just about to talk about this now. The, the, the most One second. One The most prolific of the final prophets is Zechariah. Um, he, together with Haggai, had Nevoah, uh, specifically that Hashem um, would, have, would send a blessing on their building. They gave them specific instructions. Zechariah, for example, the Gemara tells us, showed him how to remake the menorah. You remember that Moshe Rabbeinu had difficulty with the first version of the menorah, so that one Hashem had to make himself, as it were. The um, Most of the actual structure 
was as close a replica to Shlomo's version as they could make it, but they forgot some of the details. They were, for example, unsure about the width of the wall separating the Kodesh from the Kodesh Kadoshim. The Ramam describes that. Um, the Gemara Zvachim tells us that, they, that the prophets instructed them to increase the size of the Nizbeach's um, incline of the Kevishes, the, the, the ramps incline, and they had all kinds of other little details that were different. Um, I'm going to say how else they were different. Under now, another major difference is just the status of Klal Yisrael. You remember now, we are not sovereign in our land. People have that misconception about Bayis Shani. Bayis Rishon, for all of its complexities and uh, problems, but Am Yisrael, at least uh, the Mamleches Yehuda, the southern kingdom, was sovereign. Sovereign meaning independent, and the kings were indeed kings. Now, indeed, we have Zerubavel, who at least temporarily is going to function, and the, the term is Pecha, which just means a governor or prefect. But he is, and they're reminding him, he is subordinate to the Persians, to Melech Pras. Uh, he's not a king in his own right. We know another major difference is that the majority of Klali Israel is not in Eretz Israel. Most had remained back in Bavel. Um, other differences now now that you're coming back what is the status of mourning the destruction of the temple when you have the rebuilding of the temple so Zechariah they had that Shaila Zechariah tells them um, all the minor fasts now with the building of the base of Mikdash of the second temple turn to days of Simcha so Asara Betevis and, and what was fasted, the, remember the ninth day of Tammuz and, uh, for the first temple, and, and Som Gedalia, at least through the period of, of Bayez Sheni, will now be days of Simcha. <coughs> Interestingly, they maintained Tisha B'Av as a fast day because they never fully recovered from the earlier tragedy. And we're going to see, I'm about to get to, I, I know everybody's like suspended and in, in, in waiting for the response. I'm about to get the response. The second temple is really markedly different than the first and inferior on a number of levels. And they never forgot it. And because of that, because they never really restored the former glory, uh, they remained, they retained the fast of the, of the ninth of Av. The Rambam writes about this in depth in his, in his commentary on the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. In the sixth year, of the rule of Daryavish, finally the base of Mikdash is complete. Um, it was a process that really went, for, I mean, the, they, they sort of completed it in 352. They finally have the celebration four years later in 348. These are all adjusted to different um, calculations that were not, they're not precise these, these dates. It's hard to get precision, but there is a final, there's an end to the, the building. They make a celebration, they, they bring korbanos, there's great simcha. Uh, still, the elders who recall the first version weep in, in recalling the superior building, even though the youth are celebrating still. What, Jake? Did I say, like, when um, Shlomo like, uh, painted the temple, like, sort of the Shem Shekhinah in the... Uh, yeah, so here I go. Here are some of the differences. Here are some of the differences. First, and probably most obvious, explicit, the stones of Shlomo. How did Shlomo get those stones? Shomer, With the Shamir. Remember, the Shamir is not a worm. The Shamir creature that's really not like anything that we know. Uh, the Shamir helped him make these spectacular, gorgeous, gorgeous, uh, perfectly carved uh, stones. His were each exactly 8 by 10 amos. They were precious. 
Um, the stones that they could come up with in the second temple were handmade, they were rounder, they were smaller, and they were embarrassed. They saw the differences. Very famously, the new building, by order of the Persian king, included an unplastered wooden plank that was underneath the entire structure. Do you know about this? What's the function of an unplastered wooden plank that was underneath the entire structure? That was a threat, deliberate, Gemara and Rosh Hashanah tells us this, a wooden plank, all you need is a little bit of uh, flammable ingredients and it sets fire very, very easily. They're reminded daily, in other words, that with the, as it were, flick of a match, a matchstick, um, the entire thing could be burned just as easily. Very, um, all again, they better behave themselves, warned the Persian kings. So even though you know, we have Persian kings and in theory they're nicer and maybe Daryavish is Jewish, but uh, it's anything but sovereignty, it's any, anything uh, but, a, but a happy time and, and, and a full celebration when, they, when they're living in the shadow of a, of, of, uh, of a foreign domain. And if that's not enough, right across from the eastern gate, meaning the gate, if you can picture the models now, was it helpful yesterday? You see, see the models, can you like envision now? Picture the eastern gate coming in from Mount of Olives, the Harazesim, right there above the eastern gate, uh, across from the Kodesh Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies, is the image of Shushan Habira, the capital city of Shushan, reminding who's who and what's what. And let there be no mistake, you are Persian subjects. The Gemara Yuma itemizes five specific elements of the base of Mikdash that are lacking, that we had in the first temple. I think this is really answering your questions finally, Jake, and we don't have now. A, as we said, the Aron, together with the Kaporis and the Kruvim and all the accoutrements. Um, instead of the Aron, inside the Holy of Holies, the Dvir, remains the Shesia stone, the Evan Shesia, that protrudes three etzbaos, three fingers above the ground. That was it. That was it. All Everything else was gone in captivity or buried underground. Um, the second element, there were five things that the Gemara and Yuma itemizes. The second is a heavenly fire. And it, was, it was a miraculous fire, and actually the Mepharshim explained it's still there, like it was in the first temple, but it's symbolic. It doesn't actually help them. In the first temple, it actually uh, was part of the Avoda. Here, it's just there, not doing anything. The third element, the Gemara list, is the Shechina, but then again the Mepharshim qualify that they say um, it's not openly perceived. It's only hovering over by Shani. And the explanation is, why is the Shechina not present? Because the Shechina is only present in what's called Ohele Shem, in the tents of Shem, Ben Noyach, and not in the tent of Yafes. And at the end of the day, and the way to think about the second temple, the second temple is Ohel Yafes. It's the tent of Yafes. It's the one that the Persian, Korish, uh, instigated and approved, and that was to his credit and so on. It could have been Mashiach on some level, but at the end of the day, it's not what it's supposed to be. It's not from Yafes that the, uh, the final vision of the, of the, of the redemption is going to emerge, but rather from shame, and therefore the Shechina is not openly perceived in the second temple. We don't have the same level of prophecy. They call it Ruach HaKodesh in the Gemara, but it means prophecy. And finally, we don't have, something we mentioned yesterday too, as part of the Choshen Mishpat itself, the Urim and Tumim. 
Binyan of the Urim and Tumim, which is, as it were, a way I describe it is the red line to Kaddish Baruch Hu communicating to the Kohen Gadol. It's the message from Hashem. The breastplate. There's a machlok, as you showed about what it is exactly. According to one view, it's the actual Choshen Mishpat. According to another view, it's a piece of paper, a parchment inside the Choshen Mishpat. But either way, should we go to war, Hashem? Should we not go to war? Do you remember with um, the Kalal Yisrael's deliberations, the civil war against Binyamin? <laughs> they found out from Hashem that they could fight Binyamin by way of the Urim and Tumim. What's that? But they would lose twice. Right, right. Even so, but they inquired the Urim and Tumim. Uh, we don't have that anymore. So there are a lot of differences. So there's a sense of um, emptiness, of sadness, the kind of, with all of the simcha, it's a bittersweet kind of a simcha, a bittersweet kind of a joy that over, overrides uh, the early stages of the second temple. And then it gets a little bit worse before it gets very bad. Um, the Kohen Gadol is a tzaddik by the name of Yoshua, but he's flawed and his sons are very flawed. His sons marry Noshim Nochrios, forbidden women, foreign women. They're non-Jewish women in the land. And shockingly, just as we're returning, just as we're striving to make tshuva, the sons go off the derech. They start, they start marrying these women. And Yeshua uh, is faulted because he doesn't protest. Notice, by the way, back in the day, that could be seen as a sin of a lifetime. It was the sin of Shlomo HaMelech. It's not the last time. It's the sin of the sons of, um, of Eli, Chofni, and Pinchas. So often it's it, it, the sins, it's a sin of Tzikiyahu, the last king. What we, we said, a sin of um, omission, not a sin of commission. Well, that's similar here. They, uh, Yoshua doesn't protest. It's a time then that many of the locals who return start to become disillusioned. They're disillusioned with everything I just described. And they're now starting to be disillusioned with the leadership. Zerubbabel, we actually know very little about him as a person. But apparently, he wasn't the stature of some of our other le leaders. Yoshua Kohen Gadol now is letting them down, and many of them neglected to come to the base of Mikdash. They turn to their own lives. And if they turn to their own lives, you know, a Jew can never be neutral. If we're not channeling our spirituality towards the Kaddish Baruch Hu, inevitably, we're going to channel it someplace else. Sometimes to Avodah Zara, in the modern day with assimilation, you ever, you ever wonder how how it is that the Jews are so disproportionate to their numbers, effective and successful in whatever they do in the world. And I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but you know the disproportionate number of Nobel Prize winners and artists, filmmakers, and, and um, not athletes necessarily so much, but okay, we can forgive them that. The, um, but uh, you know, just look at, look at the Supreme Court, three out of nine of the members of the present Supreme Court, look at the members of Congress, look at the, and, and on and on and on, how, and that's true all over the world in almost every area, so it's the Jews, when they don't have the spark of, of Kedush, of Tyra, so they'll channel it elsewhere, and so to here, they're not just neutral, they start to turn to the abominations, the toevos of the locals, uh, remember there are foreign people in the land still, descendants of the Canaanites, and they start to influence the Jews as in the days of old, and they start to forget their Torah. And somebody needs to hit the low keys on the piano, please, Arye. Yeah, yeah, so it doesn't bode well. And the next year, uh, a great man leads a new group to, from Bavel to Eretz Yisrael. It's a group of 1,500 families after he convinces Daryavish to nullify the decree, remember Koresh had made a decree restricting or, or uh, nullifying any aliyah, any Jewish immigration, migration 
from Bavel back to Eretz Yisrael, this man convinces the new king, Daryavesh, to nullify the decree. He then leads, very famously, 1,500 families to come back to Eretz Yisrael from Bavel. His name, of course, no, really, Ezra Hasofer. Ezra Hasofer. Um, that's the, I'm going to get to this soon enough. Anybody learn the fourth, fourth parak of Kiddushin? Fourth chapter of Kiddushin? The first, it's, it's called, um, it's called Asara Yuchsin. And the Mishnah starts there saying, Asara Yuchsin Alumi Bavel. Ten different categories of people came up from Bavel. It refers to this famous Aliyah, of Ezra's Aliyah. People get, the, get this confused too. It's not the initial Aliyah. The initial Aliyah of the second temple period is under Zerubbabel. It's, it's what we call Shivat Sion. This is now after the Hanukkah Sabayis, after the building's been built, now Ezra comes back. Who's Ezra? Great figure. He is a Kohen. He descends from Pinchas. He is the son of the, of, uh, he's an old man at this point because his father was Sariah, who was the Kohen Gadol that was killed by Nebuchadnezzar at the time of the, at the Chorban. Ezra, some say, according to the Gemara Megillah, is Malachi. Is the same prophet as Malachi, Hainuhach. Others disagree and say Malachi is one person, Ezra's another. Um, there's a lot to be said. I, I, you know, it can be very persuasive that Ezra is Malachi. If you anybody learned the, the books, the style of the Sfarim are similar. Uh, for example, uh, one of the major issues in both books is the uh, they, they both rail against intermarriage. And guess what? That was obviously a key issue in those days of Jews marrying non-Jews, and uh, it would make sense perhaps if they were both the same person. Um, also, interestingly, in, Ezra, in the book of Ezra, the only prophets mentioned by name are Haggai and Zechariah, and that's a little striking since we're used to thinking of this period as, as of, of having the three great prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, unless you say maybe Malachi is Ezra himself, and then there's no need to mention Malachi. And then that, that, would, that would work out very nicely if that's the way we, we explained it. So maybe Ezra is Malachi himself. Um, he wrote some interesting books. Anybody know what his bestsellers were? Ezra's books? Ezra. Ezra. Good. This one's very good. He's a keeper. Ezra. In fact, Ezra is the name of two books in one. Ezra and Nehemiah actually were, is really all one safer. Just like the first book, the second book of, of Shmuel, and the first book of Malachi and Dibayami, they're all really one book. So too Ezra and Nehemiah were, co were, 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 were authored by Ezra. He, he, right, he oversaw the finalization of Tanakh. So when I say the Anshik Nesigdola wrote Divrei Hayamim, Chronicles, the two books of Chronicles, um, that was really under Ezra. He oversaw that. He was the head of the, the men of the Great Assembly during that period. Um, and as we said, he also may have been the author of Malachi, if he is Malachi. Uh, I just happened to learn this in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, and just today, just this morning, I learned another beautiful bit on Ezra, and I thought, oh, it's always whatever you're learning, it's always what, it, it's, other things come in to the story. Ezra is one of the great figures of all time. Um, he was, the, the Gemara that I learned earlier today um, considers the possibility that Ezra was unique in his generation and being unequal to having any peers. And then the Gemara there uh, says, no, no, there were other great peers. There was Nehemiah, who was on par in his excellence as a, as a Torah scholar. So on that level, Ezra wasn't alone. But elsewhere, the Gemara does say, get this, 
you don't hear this about anybody else in history about Ezra, had Moshe not come first, the Torah itself would have been given through Ezra. I don't know about you. I personally would like that statement on my resume. You know, that's, that's high praise. And again, you won't find it anywhere else in all of Shas about any other figure. That's how great Ezra was. He could have been, he could have given Klal Yisrael the Torah itself. In fact, in many ways, as we're going to see, I don't think we'll get there today, but we'll see in the coming days, in many ways, he really did renew the Torah for Klal Yisrael. But didn't he institute... Uh, Lots of things. He instituted reading it on... The That's just, you're just getting us started. We're going to talk about, he, to a large degree, he and the men of the Great Assembly will change everything we know of that's called Judaism. So stay tuned. It's a very, very impactful period of time. So much happens that you're, you're going to, and when I, when I give you some of these, a lot of these things will say, oh, right. It'll all kind of come together unless you already know this. Okay. Um, he is... The next link in the chain of the Messiah, if you take out your Messorah sheets, he, the reason he never came back, thank you very much, the reason he never came back with the initial Shivat Zion under Zerubbabel is he couldn't. See, Ezra was back in Bavel and he was busy doing the more important work that Klal Yisrael needed him to do, receiving the Messiah from his Rebbe. Who's his Rebbe? Baruch Ben-Neria. Who's Baruch's Rebbe? Yirmiyahu. And they each need to have those critical years of, of uh, uh, to be disciples. And Ezra needed to learn under Baruch. And then you ask the question, well, why couldn't Baruch, Benaria himself, make Aliyah? Why couldn't he come back to Eretz HaKodesh? And the answer was, is he was obese. He was too large. They could, and he was too old. He couldn't even be fit on a cart. Wait, where is to be, on here? One second, to, be tra to, to travel to Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> so Ezra stays in Bavel, learning by his Rebbe the entire time, and only when Baruch finally dies does Ezra now make Aliyah as soon as he possibly can, immediately. I was inspired by this Lahavdil, I'm no Ezra, I'm not making such a coincidence, but the idea that you have to stay in Gullus until you can no longer come back. I got this uh, big matana, I got this um, big graduate, this, this, this graduate fellowship, the Wexner Graduate Fellowship to, um, to learn Torah for free, basically, for, for about four years. And it was a big matana. And the, one of the catches was, we were in Eretz Yisrael for a couple of years, but I had to go back to the States. And that's when I learned at YU. And, and I was over to learn with, among others, the likes of Rav Willig, who you should, by all means, stay and hear. He's coming to speak today at 5.15. Oh, it's, oh, right, tomorrow's Thursday. Right, you're right, it's tomorrow. So tomorrow, by all means, you should, you should take advantage of that. It's a tremendous schluss. Anyways, at YU. And then my Wexner Fellowship was up when my, when my, when my academic school year finished in mid-June of 1994. And on June 23rd of 1994, that's our official Aliyah date. Like we ran the second we could get back to Eretz HaKodesh. And we've been here since, 20 years. Uh, <laughs> 20 years and a half. Um, anyway, anyway, that was, that's the attitude. We should, we should always be in Eretz Yisrael unless we can't be. And then when we... As soon as those excuses no longer pertain, we should run back immediately. That's what Ezra did. Yeah, go ahead, Barak. And where was Ezra during Purim? Uh, we don't hear about him. He was uh, busy quietly learning the Messiah from Baruch Benaria. And, and could he have been, uh, do you know how Daniel was uh, supposedly the messenger? Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe he was involved. That I, I have never seen a medrash that incorporates Ezra into the narrative. <laughs> it doesn't mean that it, it, well, he wasn't, but I haven't heard about him. Yeah. Ilan? Um, where, uh, Ovadia, Ovadia is much, much earlier. Ovadia, the one with the shortest book in the Tanakh, we mentioned here, 
as being a student of Eliyahu Navi and part of the a narrative with Ahab and Izebo. So why is he not He is, and we also mentioned this, he and Yonah and Yechezkel are the three Navim with their own books who are not part of the Messiah. Why? Because? No, no slight on their part. They just technically were not part of that as the Rambam has it listed. But Abadi, like, Yonah at least has a story about him. No, Abadi has quite a story. I think you must have missed those classes of, that we had here. We, he, he figured not prominently, but he certainly has a role to play. Which, who was the third? It was uh, Yona Abadi. Yona Abadi and not are not technically part of the Messiah. Um, when Ezra comes up to Eretz Yisrael, many Jews join him who are from the original villages in Yehuda and Binyamin, really the, 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 the kingdom of Yehuda, like, for example, Beis El, Jews from Beis El. And remember, they kept their nationality, and they lived in, in Bavel, and they called themselves Moshe HaBeis Eli, Abraham HaChormai, from Chorma, and like that. Um, and when they came back to Eretz Israel, many of them returned to their former villages to rebuild. Uh, he brought back Kohanim, but most of the Kohanim, most of the Mishmaros, the 24 families who served in rotation in the base of Mikdash, most of them remained behind in Bavel. Only four of the original Mishmaros came back. Namely, if you want to get this down, Yedaya, Harim, Pashkur, and Emer. They came, and we'll see, because they came and the others didn't, they're going to be deserving of a special reward. Um, he also brought back Nesinim. Do you remember who the Nesinim were? It's the last time we're going to really hear about them formally in history. We talked about them in the days of Yoshua, and then in the days of, uh, of Shaul and David. They're other, otherwise known as the Givonim. The, the, the Givonim who lied to Yoshua, where they, they became the water, they, they had a false, they had a conversion that was legitimate, but they became the, the water carriers and the woodcutters, and they were their own type of people, and they killed off Shaul's sons, and David punished them by, by uh, saying we couldn't intermarry. They came back with Ezra too. <laughs> Last time we're going to hear about them. And the Gemara says, and I, the one I quote is, the Mishnah says in Kiddushin, um, ten yuchsin, ten categories of yichis, of uh, familial identity, came up from Bavel, and they included the lives of the Nesinim, and the Mamzerim, and the Asufim, and the other lowest ranks of society, the people of questionable lineage, so that they, they could be supervised by the Gedolei Hador, by the men of the Great Assembly. And what they, and this is all intentional, really they brought up the lowest of the low from Bavel, and those who didn't come from Bavel were all of pure Yithis. And the Gemara there elaborates that they were concerned in Bavel, they'd lack supervision from the highest level Torah scholars, and therefore they had to be completely above and beyond suspicion, and their yichis, their family purity, in not, not in terms of nida, but their purity of yichis, in terms of knowing who's a mom and who's not, was, uh, was unquestioned, and that's, they could, they could leave with good conscience, then Bavel's okay, we've got, we've, as it were, we brought the weak ones along with us to Eretz Yisrael. That's the, that's the condition of the Aliyah of, the Aliyah of Ezra. Um, the Gemara Yuma, though, fills in and says that many who didn't come, he tried to persuade, and he failed. He couldn't persuade them to come up from Bavel. And then the Gemara offers different reasons. Why did they come back? And it's a question, no? Why, and it's a question people ask today, too, if we have an opportunity to live in Eretz Kodesh, why do so many Jews persist in living 
in Golis, and it's a question I can give. A, I, I, I give a whole shir. I, 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 uh, there's a famous tshuva of the Avni Nazir, beginning of the 20th century. He tries to pose the same question in the modern days. Why do Jews persist in living in places don't know? You know, far and wide from Miami, all the way, all the way to Calabasas, they even some some parts of the British Isles, even up in Manchester and everywhere. What? We're being thrown out of Eretz Yisrael. And then that's why the last reason why we decided to live in Lutz, right? No, but you're saying, why do people persist in living? Why, if we have an opportunity to return, as they do now in the Second Temple period, and by extension as we do now in this period, why don't they return? Why don't they return? That's the question. Oh, so, so, so you, you take the critical stance, which is a reasonable stance. It certainly pertains today. It's certainly the, sir, the siren song of exile of Gullus. It's a lot more comfortable for many people, not for everybody. But in, in general today in the Western societies, it's a much more comfortable existence. Uh, a, friend of my, a friend of mine now um, had to go back to a certain big, big Jewish community in exile today uh, because of a family situation, he went to a Rav, and that's what was Paskin, and he is miserable. And I just gave him a ride back from Rav Pittam's wedding yesterday, and he was telling me this exact insight. He said he feels increasingly, ever since he left America, he, he's from America, but he's been in Eretz for many years, he feels that increasingly, and I don't know if he's right or wrong, this is his perception, um, that the um, Gullus Jews are more and more disconnected from the reality of Israel, and really from the consciousness that they should be in Israel. Sometimes when you're living your life in Gaulus, you create a sense that this is the ideal, this is where we're meant to be, and uh, it's not really true. We're really all meant to be in Eretz Israel. What's that? Well, because the Chofetz Chaim mentions that a person can um, not only speak Lashon Hara about individuals, but even a community, uh, if you say something negative about a community that's also considered Lashon Hara, I'm not, I'm not elaborating where it is, but the truth is it really doesn't matter. I think this word probably could apply to almost everywhere, but I deliberately left out. West in a very nice it's funny. Somebody said that once. Somebody said. Somebody said in comparison, in comparing di different cities that of the different exiles, different diasporas, some are better, some are worse. He said um, that, like for example, Toronto's much worse than New York or Los Angeles. Because in places like New York, New York or Los Angeles, you can make no mistake about it. You are in Gullus. And it's just obvious. It screams out to you from the billboards, Lo Aleinu Chas Shalom, right? That, that this is Gullus. He said, but Toronto is so nice and so comfortable in Jewish life and learning and all the rest can be potentially so comfortable that you forget it's Gullus. And therefore, he concluded, it's the worst Gullus when you forget it's Gullus. So that's a, these are, these are a subjective calls. Maybe one reason is that there's a lot of laws that they don't have to keep it if they're in the club, club Oh, for sure. <laughs> they don't. But yeah. as Jews, especially if we're committed Jews, and we're assuming the Jews at this time, especially in Bumble, they've made Shuvah, they're committed Jews, they crave, they want mitzvahs. Do you realize every mitzvah is another opportunity to serve Hashem? So why? And the opposite. I run the Shemitah. Are you kidding? This year is fantastic. This year is a series of opportunities, not burdens, by, by our ability to keep the so Shemitah here. So the Gemara says like this. <coughs> Um, he couldn't persuade them. First of all, they were relatively poor, and they felt if we're poor here, we're not sure how to make it in Eretz Yisrael. That factor combined with the fact that in Eretz Yisrael, there was even greater poverty. So if we're, not, if we're barely making it here, how on earth are we going to make it there? That's what they said, and a lot of people say similarly today. I think so. I think so. Uh, you know how to make a uh, small fortune in Eretz Yisrael today? You bring a large one. I mean, you watch it very quickly become very small. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the Gemara continues and said they were in fear 
of the various eternal enemies of Klal Yisrael, Edom, Ammon, Moab, I, we said, Sancheriv mixed up the nations. So whoever's living in those places, Edom is still Edom, certainly, uh, and they were concerned. The Gemara then also gives, as Ilan, you started to give a critical sense, they become comfortable in Bavel. And they had rationalized that <laughs> this was not the same as going back to a sovereign base of Mikdash, as if the Jews had their own, uh, their own uh, monarchy. After all, Korish initially had only permitted the building of base of Mikdash. They were, as we've reminded ourselves, totally, subje- uh, totally subservient to the Persians. Um, there was no Gula, no final, no Mashiach, no final redemption of any kind. Uh, and they felt that they could just stay there. Maybe this is kind of what happened Sure, all that's going to be part of that, and you're going to see that's going to play into the narrative too. That makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I mentioned this. I mentioned this, and yet another factor that's um, that sometimes you hear modern Israelis say, "Oh, it's just like Golis Bavel, uh, the modern day. The modern day they don't come because of the comfortable, the comforts in 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 in, in the, wherever they are in the Western world. Even sometimes outside, even beyond the Western world." Um, I think that the analogy breaks down. I think I mentioned this a few days ago, too. Um, in Bavel, you were staying because there was a strong Torah community. Eretz Yisrael was really a, a questionable Torah community. They had not yet rebuilt at all. And as I just started to say, there's some pretty ominous negative signs of life in Eretz Yisrael where they're starting to intermarry. And uh, as we see the weakest dregs of society, they're going to come back with, with, with Ezra. At least you could believe that you you know you're staying in a strong Torah community in Babel. In that way, I think the analogy is not at all uh, apt, but um, there are some parallels certainly. But, but even in the states, they have. A, I mean, the states is one of the best Jewish communities. It's true, ever. and there's maybe a, there's, there's th- this could be debated, but um, many would assert that the Kimitzion Teitzetayra and the Torah that's been rebuilt in Eretz Yisrael over the last several decades has is is arguably unrivaled. Arguably, as strong as you have, you do have strong, not just in the States, you have strong tourist centers in, 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 Brit- in Britain, you have strong tourist centers in other parts of the world, um, but some would assert that it's, there's really nothing as uncompromising as Eretz Yisrael. Uh, I could make that argument. And there are exceptions to the rule. There's certainly a strong people in Gidolim outside of Eretz Yisrael, but it's pretty amazing. When it, have you guys ever been around? At the, I, I hope we'll have time to get through everything. But what, at the very end uh, of this class, I want to do an ass- I do an assessment of the yeshiva life in Eretz Yisrael. You should, in the course of your time in Eretz Yisrael, go and sit in some of these great institutions of Torah learning. You can go to the Mir. Don't just go to the Mir. Go to Panovich. Go to go to go to Tifra. We are, we are. But go to the institutions where they, there is not an empty seat to be had in the base medrash, where there are people found in the base medrash, mamashi yomam velayla, 24-7. Uh, they go in rotation, some eat while others are learning, where the learning is as it's described in the Mishnah, Pirkei Avos, mamish, pas v'melech, water, bread and bread and salt, and minding surah, bitter waters, sleeping on the ground. They're, they're mamish, they're, they're living and dying, they're breaking their teeth over Tyra in, in a really inspiring way. You should be exposed to that. You should see it. it it's not quite what we've created here. Derek's great in many ways. We haven't quite reached that level. Not yet. We're working on it. Uh, come to Shapri's first. Um, that was an editorial. Yeah. <coughs> editorial commercial. Finally, the last one I'm going to say, very striking, Gamar, and you might, Reish Lakish teaches, 
Hashem, he, say, he goes so far as to say, and this I think is an example of Lashem Guzma, of an exaggeration, but he says, Hashem hates the Babylonians. He hates Bavlim. And one of the reasons he says is because, the primary reasons, their failure to return en masse, he claims, he argues, prevents the re full return of the Shekhinah. Meaning, this time in history, on some level, was a lost opportunity, and had Klal Yisrael risen to the task, they could have brought back the Shekhinah and really done the job, and they didn't. So, not always made those though. Perhaps. Yeah, leading up to and including. And, you know, at every stage in history, every generation that didn't rebuild the base of Mikdash, it's as if the Chorban happened in that generation, ours as well. And their generation was an exalted generation. It was known for tshuva, a lot of good things, and they could have been better. And um, because they basically don't have the rebuild, they still have the obligation of Shabbat Interesting. Good question. Um, <laughs> there is such an obligation. It wasn't always feasible. So, insofar as you're able to fulfill the mitzvah, you do it. Otherwise, you're potentially would be anus if you couldn't do it. If you lived Yeah, if you lived as far as Babel. Although a lot, there's, we're going to see a lot of back and forth between the communities. It kind of depended on the political atmosphere. Sometimes the oppression was such that it just wasn't possible. During the journey, Ezra discovers. Oh no. Only a very few Levim have come back, and you got to have Levim. What are the two major uh, jobs that Levim served as in the base of Mikdash? We mentioned it yesterday. They're the, sh they're the, they're the, sh the shoring, they're the musicians, the singers. Hayom Yom, Hayom Yom Rivi'i, Shabo Ayu Levim, Omri, the base of Mikdash, and also the caretakers, the shoring, the gatekeepers. They, they, they oversaw the, the, the key, and they, they were critical, and there weren't enough. And there were mostly older Levim, and you remember those older Levim were thumbless, remember? They bit off their thumbs, Ech nashir shir Hashem al admas neichar, to thwart Nebuchadnezzar, and without their thumbs, they're puzzled, they're disqualified from their avoda. They can't do their avoda shashir. So Ezra, in a, in, in a tight situation, sends back to Babel, we need, practically, we need more of you Levim to come, and only a few do. And so he finds the Levim, some say it's permanent, the Gemara talks about it, some say it's temporary, and he allows the Kohanim to take Meiser Rishon, the portion, the Meiser portion that usually goes only to the Levim. Now the Kohanim, some say the Kohanim get some of, get, can take it, and some say only the Kohanim now take it as a penalty, as a knas, to the Levim who are negligent in their obligations. Um, very significantly, this is this is a key. The next point is a key turning point in history. When Ezra comes to Eretz Yisrael, his first order of business is to reestablish the kedusha of Eretz Yisrael. And you remember this in history. Who initially established the kedusha in Eretz Yisrael? David. Yeshua bin Nun. In the conquer the land. Why is that significant? What is the kedusha? When Eretz Yisrael has kedusha, therefore. You have all the mitzvos hatluyos it's the agricultural laws. Without kedusha, there's no shemitah is not binding. Trumos and maestros, all the various agricultural laws. Ezra comes and and the kedusha was nullified with the korban, with the destruction of the first temple. Now it's reinstituted under under Ezra. So now formally there's shemitah again. There's maestros um, and the expression in in, in the Gemara Yivamos, Vachim, and elsewhere. Kitsch, um, unlike Yoshua's Kedusha, which was a temporary, it, it expired at the end of the first temple, Ezra's, get this, and there's a big halachic, a lot of nachkaminas from this, Kitsch l'shaisa velasid lavo. It was immediate Kedusha and permanent.
for all future days. It lasts, this Kedusha lasts even after the Second Temple is destroyed and persists till today. Um, oh, so listen for a second. It's true. The Gemara Nivamos discusses this in great length. Most authorities today hold that the Dinim today are still Durabanan uh, for all kinds of reasons. Um, Rambam in, in, in Hilchos Trumos tells us that the, the, many of the agricultural laws will only be deraisa when um, Kol Yisrael are in Eretz Yisrael, when you have a decisive majority of the Jews in Eretz Yisrael. By the way, we're living in exciting times, based on the demographics at least. It may be that, we'll, that we or you might be, or some of us may be alive for that to happen. I have in my timesheet, what do I have in the timesheet? I have a projection. 2030, but that's just a guess. Just an educated guess. It could be give or take some years because it depends on lots of extraneous, you know, un uncontrolled variables. But um, but it's possible that that'll happen. In which case, uh, all these obligations may indeed become derisa. Anyway, there is kedusha, so we do. We are nohek shmita as we are this year. Um, Durabanan, which is still a very big deal, and that's all from the days of Ezra. Didn't they have a problem Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yovel's an issue, yeah. Um, I heard that Mishkan has to come Stay tuned. I don't want to get into calculating the end and when Mashiach comes and so on. Lots of divergent opinions and lots of discussion around this. Go look at the Gemara and Chalik. Let me let me continue. These are all approximations. They're all based on modern demographics and other calculations. You can the big margin of error. Don't don't take don't take these don't take these as uh, any. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Fine. Don't take these as, as scientific. Um, <clears throat> Ezra does something else very interesting. In establish reestablishing the kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, he deliberately excludes specific cities. The Gemara in tells us he excludes Beit Shan, which is a place I considered guiding you when we went to the north last, but it didn't work out. Ashkelon, Susita, Kfartsemach, Beit Guvrin, Kesaria. These places were never designated for Kedusha back then, and so, and so um, even till today in theory, um, the Anim could go there and gather tithes, gather the maestros during the Shemitah years. It was to benefit them because if the entire land was designated as having Kedusha, it would be harder for the poor people. Um, it was a leniency, and Chazal explained it as necessary in his weak generation since they had previously neglected the Shemitah year given the complexity of the situation, this is one way they could help the poor. So why did they do that this time? What's that? Why did they do that this time? Why did they go to these cities and turn it into a giant farm and Interesting, interesting. I, um, today, it's a whole topic in this, but today it's a machlokis in the post scheme. There are, let's say, the Kaftar Veferach is one of the early post scheme who comes to the view that um, those these laws still pertain today. He actually lived when he came, when he made Aliyah 401 years ago. He, he, made, he, he made Aliyah, no, excuse me. Yes, he made Aliyah in 1313, uh, the secular calendar, and he lived in Beit Shan for most of his stay in Eretz Yisrael, and he held that Beit Shan of 1313 was the same Beit Shan of the days of Ezra. It's in the Beit Shan Valley. You know where Beit Shan is today? Rome, big Roman city, interesting place, okay. Uh, near the Jezreel Valley. 
Wait, what city? Beit Shan. Okay? It's where Shaul's, Shaul and his son's heads were hanged up on the wall by the, the police team. We've mentioned it before. So he held it was the same Beit Shan that Ezra excluded from the Kedush of Eretz Yisrael and therefore was not subject to Shemitah year and other agricultural distinctions because he held that you could hold by the traditional names. The Chazonish represents the view, the opposite view. He said that today, and his is, the, his is really the authoritative view today, the Chazonish, he says that today we can't, I mean, it's true that Ezra excluded these places, but we don't know halakhically where these places are. So in doubt, we assume all of Eretz Israel is subject to the agricultural laws like Shemitah. And then who's to say that what we call Beit Shan today was the same Beit Shan, that same land of mass that Ezra excluded when he when he uh, so made when, when he established the kedusha? So when you make a block of Tremaisa, and let's say you're in a place but you don't know, so you're saying it's a Suffolk block. It's a great question. I don't know the answer. I, I, I've never seen inside that somebody would not make a bracha. So Lichora, you would still say the bracha. But it's a very, but it's, it's a really, absolutely reasonable question. Absolutely reasonable question. Tomorrow, anybody feel like shechting a paraduma? We're about to shecht in our paraduma. And I would say it's, uh, I'm going to elaborate on what I claim is one of the most important turning points in all of history. I, I mentioned it briefly yesterday. But there's a lot of ramifications, so try to come tomorrow so you can understand.